centenary of Jaspers that we have uh, Giovanni Tangley here to talk about Jaspers and the ethics of incontinent Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for this um, invitation. The topic of my talk will be Kayaspers' uh, ethics of incomprehensibility. Um, much of what I'm going to say is uh, controversial. Uh, I'm very well aware of that. Uh, the very uh, core of my thesis is controversial, at least controversial. What I suggest uh, is that the most effective and useful, perhaps, way to read or to interpret Jasper's famous concept of incomprehensibility is not to read it as a methodological or epistemological concept, rather as an ethical one. Um, I must say that um, I gave this presentation uh, more or less the same in a few places before, and most of the people were pretty disappointed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I thought that there was something good in it, and <laughs> I decided to choose this uh, topic for my presentation here. Um, the whole argument, uh, you can find it in uh, the book that we just published with Oxford University Press, one century of Akayaspers general psychopathology. So in case you're not too disappointed with my presentation, you can read the whole argument in the chapter that has more or less the same title. Okay. I will start my uh, loud voice, no, not loud voice, my uh, <laughs> loud mind reflection with you with um, this quotation from Carl uh, Jaspers. That is quite a paradoxical statement. He writes, all practice on the basis of knowledge must rely on the unseen encompassing, what he calls das Ungreifende. Das Ungreifende in German uh, is more or less what cannot be grasped. Medical treatment must rely on ununderstood life. So medical treatment as a special kind of practice must rely as all sort of practice on a knowledge that is self-aware of its limitation and more than this, on a kind of knowledge that is aware that its basis is ununderstood life. Uh, I can understand that if I say this to a, uh, a group of um, medical doctors, including psychiatrists, they will be very disappointed because, as a matter of fact, uh, 
medical treatments are based on a sort of a, a binary system. Most medical doctors, they have two neurons. One is for diagnosis and the other one is for treatment, okay? So if you say that uh, treatment cannot rely on diagnosis because diagnosis must rely on ununderstood life, then all the castle falls down. So um, what can we say preliminarily about Jasper's concept of uh, incomprehensibility? First of all, let's say that there is no general consensus about this concept. Uh, most uh, students of Jaspers see it as a methodological principle that sets the boundaries of what can be grasped and made sense with uh, the basic method, according to Jaspers, for uh, uh, the the, for psychopathology, for the encounter with um, uh, psychiatric patients, that is empathy. Uh, knowingly, this applies especially to schizophrenic existence. So schizophrenic existence is the kind of existence that is beyond the boundaries of understanding. And this is Jaspers in the general psychopathology. But Jaspers, as a philosopher, uses this very same concept, applies it to human existence as a whole. So, one basic statement is that schizophrenic existence in the area of um, Jaspers' psychopathology corresponds to human existence as a, as a whole in uh, the area of uh, uh, the philosophical reflection of Jaspers on uh, human existence. Uh, so to say, the schizophrenic person is uh, the epitome or the uh, paradigm for the incomprehensibility of the otherness of the other. So my claim is to have a better interpretation of Jasper's incomprehensibility, we better see it from the angle of ethics, how to behave with other human beings, rather than from the angle of epistemology. Uh, this kind of uh, ethics for uh, psychiatrists sets the agenda for a kind of practice that is based on the, in the practice of approximation. I like very much this word because approximation uh, concretely means getting near to another person, but at the same time, this is a metaphor that is uh, uh, dear to the empirical sciences because knowledge in the empirical science is nothing but approximation. Uh, crucial to this practice of approximation that is very well aware of the fact that it is based on ununderstood life is that this attitude 
is aware of the inevitable failure of grasping the totality of the other person's existence. And is aware that we should not fall prey to reducing the otherness of the other to the same. That is, that we should not fall prey of trying to understand the other by analogy to oneself. Since the other is not someone like me, rather he calls me into question. Uh, but Jaspers uh, doesn't fall prey of uh, skepticism since the other cannot be understood, then uh, nothing matters. He doesn't fall prey of any sort of impersonal or metaphysical knowledge of the other. Rather, he exhorts human beings, and especially clinicians, to navigate the infinite space that separates them from the other. This is what he calls the leap to transcendence, we will see. Um, sure enough, the concept of comprehensibility is linked to the concept of empathy. Uh, I think that you know very well that uh, according to Jaspers, empathy is the basic method uh, for uh, the psychopathology, for the psychopathologist. Empathy is the fundamental way we all, from the earlier days of our lives, gain our epistemic hold on the social world. But of course, the concept of empathy is very controversial. It is not only a cognitive performance, but is also based on the intuitive recognition of the other's mental states. For example, through the empathic identification with the other's body, as in Merleau-Ponty's concept of intercorporeality. I'm not going into details, just to give you a hint of the fact that Notwithstanding the fact that I'm just a clinician, I know, uh, I have some notions about uh, 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 phenomenology of empathy, okay? Uh, and empathy, this is the most important point, is a kind of understanding of the other person that presupposes analogy between oneself and the other. And this is a very, very, very critical point. Jaspers says that empathy is the basic method of psychopathological assessment. The method of empathy implies the ability to feel oneself into the situation of the other person. Analogy is presupposed. And empathy also entails the effort to assess the patient's experiences from within, from the standpoint of his own subjective frame of reference. Now, uh, in the first part of my talk, I will try to show you how Jaspers, the philosopher, develops uh, what is known as the theorem of uh, incomprehensibility. And I will do this by quoting Jaspers' uh, philosophical works. And there are six points or topoi that are relevant to that. One is the topic of the unseen encompassing, 
The second one I've called uh, the asymptotic kind of knowledge. The third one is um, the criticism of what Jaspers call expert knowledge. Then the fourth, self-knowledge as a work in progress and not a possession. Then knowledge of the other as approximation. And then knowledge through ciphers. Ciphers is a very important concept in Jaspers' philosophy. Uh, if I have enough time at the end of this uh, uh, philosophical tour de force, I will, <laughs> I will try to illustrate a case study which hopefully uh, is relevant to what I have been talking about from the philosophical point of view. So, very briefly, what is the unseen encompassing? Jaspers, all kind of knowledge, he writes, is precariously based on what cannot be understood. If, and only if, we are aware of this, we grasp a new profundity. This ties, in Jaspers' philosophy, in particular to the idea of a person as a necessarily, incompletely, fathomable being. The other, Jaspers writes, can be approximated and circled, but not reached. Of course, Jaspers' uh, words are highly metaphorical. The awareness that knowing another person is an unlimited task, Jaspers writes, keeps us alert of the breadth of the essence of being human. So, these are four quotes to uh, give a, an atmosphere about Jaspers' concept of the unseen uncompensing and the way it is relevant to the theorem of incomprehensibility. Remember, the theorem of incomprehensibility is uh, relevant to clinicians since all kind of medical practice must be based on ununderstood life, on the ununderstandability of the other. Then, Jaspers writes, true knowledge is a limitless movement. That's why I call this point in Jaspers' philosophy an asymptotic kind of knowledge. You know that an asymptote is a curve that approximates uh, to a line but never reaches it. So our knowledge approximates the other but never reaches him. Here, Jaspers quote, quotes Schelling and says that philosophy, that here is coextensive with knowledge, is an open secret. This is an oxymoron. An open secret. And this is, at least to me as a clinician, a very important statement. Questions are more important than answers. And every answer must become a new question. How to interview a patient? Am I looking for answers? Or am I looking for answers that generate new questions? Am I looking for a kind of knowledge that is fixed? Or am I looking for something that stays in between 
myself and the patient as an open question, as an open secret. Claiming to have fully understood something is the most devastating threat to truth. The real purpose of the search for knowledge is attaining an increasing lucidity of a sense of being totally different from all determinate knowledge. So, the purpose of uh, exploring the other is not getting a grasp on what the other is, but getting an increasing lucidity of a sense of being totally different from all determinate knowledge. And the final outcome of all this is a critical awareness of the quality and limits of every insight. And remember that Jaspers doesn't fall prey to skepticism, to no sort of uh, cynicism in the relationship with the other. The third point, Jaspers is of course very critical to all sorts of uh, what he calls expert knowledge. What is expert knowledge? In his time, ethnology, psychoanalysis, Marxism were examples of expert knowledge because they lay claim to absolute knowledge of the whole man. And this they were all done. And in that way, they lose sight for the real man. If you try to get knowledge to the whole man, then you lose sight of the real man, of the individual. Biomedical knowledge is in itself a kind of expert knowledge, and in that sense it's not so different from Marxism, it's not so different from uh, ethnology, it's not so different from psychoanalysis. And biomedical knowledge as an expert knowledge makes three nefarious mistakes. First, it conceives of the patient as just the locus of a particular occurrence of a universal category, an illness, not as an individual. Second, in an inane effort to establish objectivity, it tends to focus exclusively on the clinical datum, the symptom, overlooking the meaning that the datum has for the patient who suffers for it. We as clinicians often overlook for the meaning that the symptom has for the patient. Two patients with the same symptom may attribute to that symptom, to that very same symptom, two different meanings. Why? Because patients as person, they can take a stance. What Jaspers and the phenomenological movement calls Stellungsnahme, taking a grasp, taking position with respect to the phenomena that affect their own consciousness. So a symptom is a phenomenon that affects consciousness and the patient as a person can take a position with respect to the symptom itself. Uh, clinical knowledge as based on biomedical paradigm sees the symptom and doesn't see the meaning that the symptom may have for the patient and doesn't see the relevance of the meaning that the symptom has for the patient. Uh, just to make a very brief clinical example, consider the meaning that the symptom has 
for an obsessive compulsive patient. An obsessive compulsive patient comes to you with his or her symptom, uh, but what he wants from you is not that you help him recover from the symptom, but what he wants for you is that he and his symptoms triumph over you and your medical knowledge. This is quite a, a strong generalization, but clinicians know this very well. This is the meaning that the symptom, let's say, may have for an obsessive compulsive knowledge, um, uh, uh, patient. It's not the same for a phobic patient, for instance. It's quite another story for a schizophrenic patient. Third point, expert knowledge, biomedical knowledge, forgets that medical practice is based on two pillars, scientific knowledge as well as humanitarian ethos. Humanitarian ethos means to Jaspers proximity to the patient and the awareness of the character of approximation of our clinical knowledge. A fourth point is that self-knowledge, as all kind of knowledge, is a work in progress. Because human existence develops in time and one's knowledge of oneself is an interminable practice of unfolding rather than a solid possession. Man is not a finished life which repeats itself from generation to generation, nor is he a manifest life which plainly reveals itself to him. He breaks through the passivity of perpetually renewed identical circles and is, in, and is dependent upon his activity, whereby the process of his life is carried on towards an unknown goal. All kind of uh, crystallized knowledge looks like the herbarium uh, with respect to living plants or as does a collection of bones to living bodies. Again, the reason why self-knowledge is an interminable process is because man can take a position with respect to himself. Since, Jasper's right, there is an inner cleavage in man's innermost nature, that implies that whatever he thinks of himself, he must think against himself and against what is not himself. So I have an experience, but I'm not just that experience. I am what I think of that experience. Then I am what I think of what I think of that experience. Then I am what I think of what I think of that experience. And this is an interminable process. Because we as human beings always set ourselves with respect to ourselves in a dialectical position, as, as I said it already, uh, we are able of taking a position with respect to ourselves, react, take up an attitude to towards what we understand of ourselves. Then, fifth point, which is perhaps the most relevant of all. Knowledge of the other is approximation. I like to bring together Jaspers with Levinas, I'm not the first one who does that. Ricoeur did something like this. Uh, to a certain extent, Derrida did something like that. Uh, but this quotation from Levinas is too beautiful. 
not to be mentioned in this context. The either, the other, is neither initially nor ultimately what we grasp or what we thematize. For truth is neither in seeing nor in grasping, which are modes of enjoyment, sensibility and possession. Truth is in transcendence, in which absolute exteriority presents itself in expressing itself in a movement at each instant, recovering and deciphering the very signs it emits. I like this very much. I don't know what you think of it, but I think there is a, a really the essence of an ethics of alterity or an ethics of otherness. Uh, here it is relevant what Jaspers calls the leap to transcendence. The leap to transcendence to Jaspers is uh, the effort to detach oneself from all sort of determinate knowledge with respect of the other, to the otherness, otherness of the other, and to navigate the infinite space that separates me from the other. To quote, once again, Levinas, uh, the promised land is not uh, the place where I will once be, where I will inhabit after my uh, trip through the desert, but is crossing the desert itself. Last point, the concept of cipher in, uh, in Jaspers. I think that the concept of cipher is uh, relevant, especially with respect to the concept of symptom. We, as uh, clinicians, are trained to see in a symptom the outcome of a dysfunction and the index for a diagnosis. So we are trained uh, to see in a symptom uh, the objective sign of something, and we are trained to reduce a symptom or something that can be objectified. But if we see the symptom through the angle of Jasper's concept of cipher, many things change. Because the cipher is what opens the path to transcendence. If the cipher becomes fixed and definite, as we would like to have it with a symptom, and turns into an object, then it loses its essential force. It collapses into a sign. The cipher must keep on an inexhaustible signification with which no definite interpretation is commensurate. Ciphers must, must not be crystallized into a kind of definite categorical concept. The meaning, or better, the meanings of the cipher must be kept in suspension and remain unsaturated. This is exactly the opposite of what we do with the synth. Now, if you are not too disappointed with all this, um, I will try 
to give up a very coarse clinical example, a case study, okay? So from, from the stars to the earth, but let's talk of, um, of a patient that, uh, or at least of um, the ideal type of uh, a real patient that any of us has met, also those who are not clinicians because these persons you can meet easily in the street, uh, think of a patient who behaves inappropriately. Uh, say that she is, um, I say she, but I don't want to be politically incorrect. It may be a he, okay? Uh, uh, he is hospitalized, okay, somewhere. He behaves impatiently, she, he is restless, complaining, refuses medication, is over-demanding, makes untimely questions about everything, wants special treatment, continuously asks for attention. Then, all of a sudden, he becomes seductive, makes two personal questions or remarks to nurses and doctors about their private life, and so on. And finally, he becomes aggressive and verbally attacks a nurse with apparently no reason. This is reported in a staff meeting, and during the staff meeting, uh, there are several voices about this patient. One voice is a nurse who deems the patient's comportment as manipulation. She is mean and antipathetic, another says. Then a doctor takes the word and says, this, this is, uh, these are acting outs, since she behaves or he behaves thoughtlessly and unresponsively. Another doctor qualifies it as an emotional dysfunction. A third explains that it's a firing amygdala. It's not so uncommon to have firing amygdala and to have doctors who say it's a firing amygdala. Then say that you uh, take part to the staff meeting and you ask, uh, did someone ever talk to these patients and inquired about why she behaves like that? And the nurse answers, well, once she told me nobody wanted to explain to me what was going on, I could not understand what they were doing with me. That's all we know. Okay. There are several, several fallacies uh, in uh, the attitudes and in the statements of uh, the staff members. For instance, the first quite patent, evident fallacy is that confining oneself to the observation of behavior is a fallacy. Let's call it behavioristic fallacy. Uh, these names are approximate, okay? Falling prey of one's emotion is another fallacy. Let's call it a pathetic fallacy. Presupposing that the patient's life world is like our own. Let's call this analogical fallacy. This is the most pernicious fallacy of all. Presupposing that her behavior is embedded in the same life world as our own. Analogical fallacy. This is 
uh, one of the uh, favorite targets of Jaspers. The Jaspers supposing that her behavior should be appropriate to our own life world, instead of expressing some purpose or needs appropriate to the life world she lives in. And so we judge her behavior as inappropriate to our own life world, instead of looking for its meaning within her life world. And thus we label her behavior as according to our own categories and values. For instance, we deem it a manipulation, moralistic fallacy, acting outs and emotional dysregulation, metapsychological fallacy, emotional dysregulation. You know very well that there are several theories that they speak about emotional dysregulation. Acting out is another uh, metapsychological fallacy. There is no balance between, uh, uh, there is no regulation of behaviors. Impulsivity on one side and mentalization on the other. Not enough mentalization. Or firing amygdala, let's call it neurological fallacy. Well, each of these interpretations are not wrong in themselves, but certainly they have one common uh, problem. They disregard the patient's subjectivity. They don't say anything about the patient's experience, the life that she lives in, and what I claim is that to be a good enough clinician, we have to try to understand a patient in the life where she lives in, and to try to make sense of a behavior in the life where she lives in. And this is not interpretation. This is not explanation. This is not uh, an overwriting of a behavior with our own categories. This is not a shire per causas. This is not a way to explain or explain away her behavior as the outcome of subpersonal agents. No, it's rescuing the meaning of that behavior within the life world of that patient. So it's no interpretation at all. Nothing to do with psychodynamics a lot to do with hermeneutic phenomenology. Okay. So, what's inside this patient's behavior? What is its motivation purpose? For instance, directing, controlling, influencing, domineering, persuading, inducing, shaping the other behavior, maneuvering, will to power, need to dominate the other, Sadism, need to get pleasure from harming the other. Fear of the other, need to control the other who is supposed by the patient to be harmful. These are all interpretations. Egoism, that is no attention to the other. Pure meanness, no respect for the other. Is it an alloplastic behavior? These are standard interpretations of this kind of behavior that you have recognized is what we uh, usually observe, I don't want to make a diagnosis, but let's make it, in a 
person with a borderline personality disorder. Okay? These are usually the interpretations that are given by staff member during the supervision of the behavior of that kind of person or patient. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to get to an interpretation. We want to get to understanding, which is quite different from interpretation. Another big problem is that I find it very hard to treat a patient, even to be with a patient, without uh, feeling some sympathy to that patient. So here, a big problem arises with this sort of patients. How to feel sympathy for, for them? How to empathize? It's not the same, sympathy and empathy, but okay. We can discuss how to empathize with antipathetic behavior of that kind of person. Well, I think that most of us as clinicians, we know that uh, empathizing is a, something that is needed in order to treat somebody. And with this person, it's very difficult to empathize. But in order to empathize with that person, of course we have to get to know motivation and purposes. But in order to get to know motivations and purposes, we have to get to know what kind of experience subtends this behavior, in what sort of life world is this behavior embedded. And I would ask the following questions to myself or to the staff member. Does this behavior reveal some aspect, perhaps essential, of the patient's life world? What might be revealed from this behavior is clinically important? Is this behavior understandable? Does it have some analogy with the life world I myself live in? Or is it totally or in part different from my own life world? And in the case this behavior where the expression of a different life world, of a kind of world in its own right, unlike my own, what can I do to approximate the world the patient lives in. Okay, remember, a nurse said that uh, this person was manipulating the others. Manipulating is a very interesting word. It comes from manus, that in Latin means hand. What if the manipulation of this person were not a way or were not simply a way of domineering the other, of shaping the behavior of the other, but an explorative behavior. Manipulation is a kind of touching. And this is the metaphorical and at the same time concrete domain of the stigmatized behavior called manipulation. And touch is the primordial source of all sorts of knowledge and acquaintance, contact. Exploring, recognizing, inspecting, investigating, scouting, checking, examining, scrutinizing. These are all synonyms to manipulating. If we see manipulation from the angle 
of a heuristic behavior, of an explorative behavior. So the question is, what if these people manipulate in order to get to know the other? Do you remember the only statement we could get from the staff meeting is that the patient was not able to understand what was going on, what the others were doing to her. What if this patient were manipulating in order to get to know the other? If this was a kind of very primordial, very, yeah, primordial behavior in order to explore the others. We all do that. So, but if this patient needs to manipulate the other in order to get to know them, what sort of representation of the other this patient must have? Because if I have a sharp representation of you, I don't need to manipulate you. I see that you are sympathetic to what I'm saying. I can easily read it in your face. Okay, so I don't need to manipulate you. But if your physiognomy is blurred to me, then I need to manipulate, perhaps to provoke you, in order to get to know what you think of me. Meanings of manipulation, handling, laying hands on someone, fingering, touching, contacting, feeling. I'm sorry, I'm not an English-speaking person. That's, uh, it's quite the same in all languages, including Italian. Steering, tapping, caressing, soothing, pressuring, squeezing, Rabbing, scratching, stretching, hurting, irritating, scraping. Of course, there is some violence in that. There's no doubt. Getting in touch, meeting, linking, but also annoying, exasperating, frustrating, vexing. Okay? That's the semantic field of manipulation. So what does manipulation reveal of the patient's life world if we leave aside the moralistic fallacy, well, that's perhaps what reveals. Unlike in the staff's life world, in the patient's life world, the staff actions, the whole situation, and the self-other relationships in general appear ambiguous, undefined, and blurry. So they need some clarification. And that is looked for through a manipulative behavior as a sort of explorative or heuristic behavior. Now, this is uh, an example of what I call second-order understanding of a patient's life world. Remember, we had to leave aside or to bracket, to use phenomenological jargon, uh, all prejudices of analogy between my own world and the world of the patient. We had to leave the behavior of the patient express what can be expressed as a cipher, as something that has redundant meanings. 
and we, have, we need to have the courage to do this. And if we do this, we will reach an understanding of the patient's behavior, not reducing the patient's behaviors to our own categories. Avoiding analogical, moralistic, metapsychological, etc. fallacies. But in her life world. And this operation sheds light on the patient's behavior through the reconstruction of the life world and thus establishes meaningfulness within her life world. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> global incomprehensibility and local incomprehensibility. There might be these sort of global questions about getting to know another person. There could be local difficulties posed by specific kinds of illnesses, like, for example, schizophrenia, if it's a brain disease. And it's important to sort of understand local incomprehensibility in local terms, not global terms. In the same case, it's important to treat the other person as a person and recognize the forms and limits of more global incomprehensibility. So there's this kind of back-scratching relationship between these two modes of incomprehensibility. And in order to tease out what those modes might be, I have a question for you about a certain kind of patient. Okay. Years ago, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre wrote a paper called The Right to Die Garrulously. And what he meant by this is Leave me out of hospice. I'm a curmudgeon. I want to die alone in my bed. Suppose you had a patient who said, I don't want you to bother with my life world. Just help me with my obsessive compulsive behavior. In other words, I'm not interested in raising issues of my global incomprehensibility. I'm interested in your addressing this local situation that I face, or for the life of me, I can't seem to get a handle on the following kind of behavior. What would you do in a case like that, as a psychiatrist, and as someone who has this wonderfully rich, complex sympathy for the uniqueness of the other person? There are several questions. Yes. I will answer to the last question, then I, that is the more practical one, uh, and then I will uh, try to answer the first question that is, philosophical one. So, what I would do is nothing different from what I, I said today. Because in order to make a decision and to uh, support a local uh, requirement of a patient, you have to make a global assessment of his being in the world. So I would think, but does this person uh, ask me for this uh, uh, local kind of help uh, because he is not able to ask me for any sort of more global help? And then, if so, I will attune 
my uh, clinical uh, decision to that. So a local decision requires a global understanding. I may not be explicit with my patient about my global understanding. I may not be so cruel as to say, you ask me this uh, because you have no philosophical mind, okay? But anyway, a local decision requires a global understanding. And that I do every day. There is no, well, uh, uh, psychotherapy is not uh, 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 philosophical in enlightenment. It could be with some patients, but not with others. Okay. But then, if we come to the local global problem, uh, we also come to a, uh, a very uh, tricky uh, philosophical dichotomy. So, uh, the problem could be phrased in this way. What's or, what sort of analogy is there between me and the other, if any? Uh, I said that there is no empirical analogy between me and you. That means that I don't have to presuppose that what you tell me corresponds to the experience that I would have in my own life world. Okay? So in order to understand what you narrate about yourself, I have to uh, change the frame of reference and try to understand it within your life world instead of within my own life world. So there is no empirical analogy to be presupposed. There might be, but there is no empirical analogy to be presupposed. But there is a transcendental analogy. What is the transcendental analogy? The transcendental analogy is that you and me are autonomous persons. And autonomous means that there is a nomos, a rule, that regulates your behavior within your life world, as there is a rule that regulates my behavior within my life world. And in this way, we are transcendentally analogous. This is uh, a deep a problem that has been developed, for instance, by Derrida in L'Ecriture et la Différence, where he comments on uh, Husserl, Cartesian Meditations, where he comments on uh, Levinas, and where he comments of the uh, ethics, indeed, of uh, analogy and heterology. I subscribe to that. I would say that there is a transcendental analogy between you and me, because we are both autonomous persons. Autonomous doesn't mean free. Autonomous means that we behave according to a normus, to a rule that is indigenous to our own life world. And that our uh, actions are meaningful, not meaningless, but within our own life world. But there is no empirical analogy, because the meaning of your actions is indigenous to your own world and cannot be comprehended from the standpoint of my, of my world. Thank you for your question. Bill. Ah, a question then. Uh, for, for enlightenment, really, Giovanni. 
it is about the articles of values, because I was very struck by your concept of approximation, the asymptotic approach, um, absolute, claiming to know the absolute, and if, uh, fail to know the real person. All those resonated very strongly with values best practice, as we've discussed. Um, and you've shaped this whole project as an ethical project. And yet, my understanding, which may be a naive understanding of the Oscars, is that the Oscars was at best ambivalent about the role of values in psychology. Um, and I'm wondering how you would sort of square that particular connection, as it were. Well, we discussed that point when, you, when we were writing the schizophrenia bulletin paper. And um, I agree with you that Jaspers was uh, at least ambivalent on values and psychopathology. Uh, somewhere he states that we should not consider values, but uh, the point that I, I would like to make with uh, this ethical uh, understanding of uh, his theorem of incomprehensibility uh, is that it can really uh, be the uh, the beginning for an ethics for psychiatry because it reverses a lot of prejudices that are there in our minds. Uh, the prejudice about uh, the objectivity of our knowledge, the prejudice about objectivity of diagnosis, the prejudice about objectivity of symptoms, prejudice about the objectivity of language. Uh, and foundates our practice to what is unknown. And more in detail, but this is another paramount question, uh, the kind of knowledge that uh, Jaspers aims to construe is not a knowledge about the subject but it's a knowledge with the subject. So, to make a very easy example, uh, we can talk about something, or we can talk with someone, okay? Jaspers is for the second. So, let's put it in very crude words. Truth is not inside the subject. Truth is between us. This is an ethical statement. And this is the ethics for clinicians that can be based in, on, on Jasper's concept of incomprehensibility. Are you happy with that? Not so much. Uh, approximately. Approximately. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> okay.